Welcome to Java with Jim, your weekly espresso shot of all things related to the financial markets. As always, I'm Jim Clare, your host, and we are supported by DoubleEaglePartners.com, LLC, a new type of asset management firm for the burgeoning middle class. You can find us at www.DoubleEagle.Partners. All right, so this week's podcast is entitled Japanification. And I think I've got a good treat for everybody this week. Um, I am going to bring in in a moment uh, a good friend of mine for the last decade and a half, uh, Tetsuo Ishihara. And Ishihara-san and I became uh, business associates when I was working for the FDIC, which I told you about in episode six. and after we became associates, when I was at the FDIC, I actually went to the same work for the same Japanese bank as Ishihara-san, and we became very good friends and colleagues, and uh, thought of the same mind, and have exchanged a lot of great ideas over the years. So I thought it would be fun to bring him on and uh, introduce him to all y'all. But at the same time, it will be great for you to get a glimpse into what happens in Japan and the Japan banking scene um, and what's going on currently in Japan, which I think has ramifications for the U.S. economy going forward. So with no further ado, uh, welcome, Ishihara-san. Hello, Jimmy. How are you? I'm good. So I'm actually stressing myself to call you Ishihara-san because yeah, one, of the close things I, <laughs> one of the first things I want to talk about is why we all call you Harry. So your name is Tetsuo Ishihara. How did Harry come about? Oh, goodness. Um, uh, I went to London in 93, and my good colleague, um, my boss was called Tetsuya, and my first name was Tetsuo. That was too close. So uh, my colleague thought of a name, Harry, from my last name, Ishihara. Got it. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> and it's. I've also noticed over the years, because I've been lucky enough in my career to work closely with the Japanese since 1987, 88, when I was at Bear Stearns. Um, I was actually one of the first people um, to work the night desk at Bear Stearns, where I traded corporate bonds and treasury bonds um, into Japan. But Bear Stearns was too cheap to open an office at the time. So we had the traders in New York. And we had salesmen in Japan, and it was uh, myself trading corporate bonds and euro bonds and Yankee bonds. Um, an older gentleman named Vinny Cazetta, who was one of these old classic Wall Street Italian guys from Brooklyn who traded treasuries. And then another really good friend of mine, Walter Booker, who traded uh, mortgage-backed securities. And the three of us would come into the office at about 4.30 in the afternoon, meet up with the other traders in New York. They'd pass the book over to us. We'd go sit in a conference room. And when Japan would come online trading around 7 o'clock, we would trade until 3 o'clock in the morning with our Japanese counterparts, at which point we would pass the book over to London. And then our day was done. But now you get off work at 3 o'clock in the morning in New York City, um, the bars are still open at 4 so we used to actually go to the bars at four o'clock in the morning, stone cold sober, because we just come from work. Um, and I did that for, oh my God, I did that for about a year, year and a half. Um, and 
and uh, that's when I kind of fell in love with the the Japanese uh, culture and uh, Japanese business, and we'll talk about some of that as 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 we go on here. But one of the things I learned during that was many of my Japanese colleagues had Americanized names, and part of it was because of the story that Harry just told you, and the other part of it was because we gaijin um which is foreigner is that correct yep yeah um had trouble pronouncing some of their names and we had this one guy we worked with his name was ishiro i think uh-huh. it's is that a, is that a first name or is, is that a proper first name ishiro? ishiro like the baseball player yeah 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 but we couldn't pronounce that 30 years ago so we're trying to say this guy's name and we couldn't figure it out and one of the other guys walter booker said screw it we're just going to call you andy and we just started calling him Andy and it stuck. And for years, this guy was Andy and he was actually kind of proud that he, you know, he'd been dubbed with an Americanized name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I got to meet Harry in 2010 when I was working for the FDIC um, as a corporate expert in the capital markets division, doing research on what happened during the global financial crisis and how to identify systemic risk in the banking system. And Harry at the time had just come to New York with uh, Mizuho Securities USA. And he was one of their macro strategists and corporate bond analyst at the time. time. Okay. And um, he found out that Johnny Cadunas, Johnny K, who was the, uh, at the time he wasn't the CEO yet, but he was on his way to be the CEO of Mizuho USA, um, that Johnny K and I were friends. And so Johnny's like, would you talk to Harry? He wants to, he has a bunch of questions about the FDIC. What kind of research were you doing back then um, that you were yeah. wanting so to I talk was to? A, uh, I was a bank analyst. Uh, I was in charge of making trade ideas uh, regarding bank bonds. I needed some uh, advice and guidance about how some bank bonds would be treated by the FDIC in a liquidation scenario, which is a very gnarly question, and it's not on it's not on any uh, published papers. So it was great to talk to you, and um, I wrote a great report after talking to you. Excellent, cool. And we also learned that because it wasn't written down anywhere, it was kind of squishy because they've obviously just changed all the rules now with the silicon valley bank bailout and you know what they're trying to do with signature bank and such um yeah so that's how harry and i met and so we would talk probably every couple of weeks while i was in dc and he was in new york and then coincidentally two years later johnny k hired me and brought me up to new york and gave me a great job and harry and i got to become um colleagues at that point which was yeah. which was wonderful um and i'll always appreciate that for sure there's no doubt about it so how was it being an expat um and for those of you that out there that don't know an expat is an expatriate so you are living in new york city as a Japanese national, working for a Japanese firm. What was that like for you and your family? Well, um, for me, I was born in New York and I spent my first 12 years of my life in New York. Um, And uh, so for me, it was a little bit like coming home. Um, I was always a little bit more American uh, than Japanese. Um, And so I loved it there, especially um, at Mizuho, that at the time our policy was to hire uh, team players with track records. 
And so it was great to be surrounded by such um, helpful people, helpful colleagues. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Cool. Very good. Very good. I like the way you say Mizuho because I always Americanized it as Mizuho uh, or the zoo, we used to call it. Um, but what does Mizuho mean in Japanese? Um, rice stalks. It, it, it's a reference to Japan. We, we can't call ourselves the Bank of Japan. Which is the central bank, so um, they call this Mizuho. So, does it have like a literal translation or anything like that? Um, yeah, rice stock, I believe. Rice stock, and right. that signifies Japan. Japan, right? Yeah, like we would be like Bald Eagle Bank because like okay. Bald Eagle yeah. signifies us. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's Very interesting. Close. All right, great. Um, so, how many years did you spend at Mizuho in New York? Um, in New York, I was assigned there twice. First time as a corporate bond strategist. Um, that was three and a half years. And then I went back to Japan for 14 months. And then I asked to go back again, and this time as a US macro strategist, which was a new role at the time. Um, and that the second time I was there for five years. So total eight and a half in New York. And that's a long time to be an expat within a Japanese institution. Doesn't matter if it's bank or Automobile manufacturer, is that correct? Yeah, uh, half, about half of my career was um, in New York and London. Great. So I was I was going to wait and talk about this at the end of the podcast, but because it's kind of germane right now, explain to our listeners what it's like to be a company man in a, a Japanese firm, and it, it it it's the same whether it's a bank or an automobile manufacturer, et cetera. Right? They they move you around. They, they grow your career, you, you, you do two years here, two years there, and you go where they tell you. How, how does that work? Right. Um, the Japanese employment system is very unique. Um, they, they, it's changing now, but I'll give you the old system, okay? Um, they would hire new graduates in bulk, like 100, 200, 500 at a time, without really knowing where they're going to go. So the first two or three years is kind of like on-the-job training, and they're trying to get a good feeling about what, what's best for you. Are you good as a trader? Are you better in research? Are you a better salesman or something else? Are you in the back office? Right? So they're trying to find uh, what, what's best for you, and then they set your career. But even after they set your career, um, a lot of uh, the bulk of Japanese employees, at, especially in the financial industry, are generalists, so we get rotated every three years. Um, so you might be a bond trader for the first three years, and then the next three years, you might be a bond salesman. Um, and to me, that's okay for the commercial banking business. So mm -hmm. if you're, uh, if, you know, if you're, um, if you're a teller at the uh, Shibuya branch, and then you're a teller at the Yokohama branch, that's the same thing, that's fine. Or if you're a teller and then you become a loan officer, that, that's very close. So that's, that's fine too. But um, I think in investment banking, I think it's better to have a, a longer career in each position because it's so specialized. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. So um, they changed. It's more of a hybrid system now. Um, I would say maybe, maybe half of the employees in the financial industry are maybe um, on the uh, generalist side. Mm -hmm. They get rotated every three years or so. And then the other half would be the specialists. So for me, I chose research and I was there for 20 years. Got it, got it. 
All right, fascinating. All right, so um, tell the listeners about what you're doing now that you've moved back to Japan and some of the uh, publications that you're doing. And your last one I thought was you know really fascinating about what's going on with monetary easing in Japan and how they are trying to um, raise wages on purpose to help get a little inflation, good inflation into their economy. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I left Mizuho to help my uncle with his family business. Um, but since then, I was a uh, advisor to Japanese regulators for about nine months, the vice minister. Um, and then uh, right now, I'm a contractor for uh, contractor macro strategist for the Japan Exchange Group or JPX, um, and the uh, macro strategist for Macrobonds, the database company. Um, so I'm posting about once a month, about a thousand words on both websites. I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, I make uh, nice graphs <laughs> using Macrobond, and um, and and put it Excellent. out on LinkedIn. My use my listeners love graphs. They like pictures and stuff like that. I try to do that all the time. Mm -hmm. All right, that's awesome. Um, so, tell us a little bit about this latest blog post with regards to Yoeda-san and monetary easing and what they're trying to do with raising wages over there. Right. Thanks. So um, I'll, I'll start off. I'll rewind a little bit um, as to why I wrote it. Um, today, Japan's probably biggest quote unquote export is uh, more financial um, than, than it used to be. So um, for many years, J Japanese financial institutions were the largest um, traders of US treasuries in the world, um, including domestic traders. Um, they would you could ask uh, bond traders and they would say that nobody trades um treasuries like the like the japanese do and the reason why um, they become so big over the years they were always big but they became even bigger after um mr ueda's predecessor mr kuroda uh who started as a boj governor in 2013 10 years ago uh, because his main the main thrust of his policy was to keep the 10-year yield on Japanese government bonds at zero. And that was and called why yield would, curve control. Why would they want to keep 10-year government bond rates at zero? So um, they were pushing the envelope. Um, you know, traditional monetary easing is about controlling the short-term overnight rate, like in the Fed funds market in the US. Mm -hmm. um, but to them, that wasn't enough stimulus. And as you know, the money markets, to me, when I teach, I say that the money markets are like the veins, central bank is like the heart, whereas the capital markets, which are markets that are longer than one year, like bonds and equities, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the capital markets, which are long-term funding, are like the lungs. That's they great. provide oxygen for growth. That's a really good analogy. I like that. Thanks. Can I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> so the lungs are more important for growth, and Japan mm -hmm. needed growth. Right. And so they suppressed the 10-year yield, right. um, which would suppress the whole yield curve, the whole everything from you know one month to 10 years would mm -hmm. be suppressed by holding down the 10-year, they thought. So then it would force capital to go into the long-term, longer-term private capital markets and keep the lungs healthy. Yeah. Interesting. And the reason that had to happen Wall stemmed, and this is kind of getting into the weeds for some of our listeners. 
but it stemmed from the the real estate bubble popping when banks who used to make loans into the real estate market in Japan and you know the Japanese would then buy up every building they could in Japan in Tokyo and pay more and more for them. Then they went around the world and bought Rockefeller Center and all the big buildings in the United States. Um be, once the real estate bubble burst, the banks had to do something on the asset side of their balance sheet. So they just bought JGBs, Japanese government bonds, and then eventually US Treasuries. So by suppressing it with yield curve control, 10-year rates at zero, you're forcing the banks not to buy these things. Right, exactly. So mm -hmm. for years, um, like you just said, uh, Japanese banks were, were very healthy. They were making loans to the Japanese economy and taking in deposits. Mm -hmm. But after our real estate bubble burst in 1990, um, and we can talk about why the bubble happened in the first place later. Um, after the bubble burst, and the bubble was very severe, the bubble bursting was very severe. Um, stock and bond prices went down, sorry, stock and real estate prices went down like 70 to 80% in a very short term. Yeah. So it turned Japan upside down. Um, and decades. loan growth stagnated. Yes, lost yeah. decades. Um, loan growth stagnated. And there was nowhere to, for the deposits to be invested in. So they were investing in JGBs, Japanese government bonds, for a long time. But then the sun decided to do yield curve control, destroyed the bond market over the years. The Bank of Japan came to own like 50, over 50% of the Japanese bond market. And, um, and in some bonds, they owned over 100%. Mm -hmm. um, and so it destroyed the bond market, which also destroyed or hurt the uh, corporate bond market because corporate bonds are priced over the government bonds. After government bond yields aren't working, you mm -hmm. can't price a corporate bond. Right. So it had all sorts of um, dysfunctions there. And so something had to be done. But anyway, so Kuroda-san, Japanese government bonds were like the staple food for banks. They were the main replacement for loans on the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. But he took it away. Right. So Japanese banks, who are the largest financial institutions in Japan, they had to go somewhere liquid because they're so big, you can't go into a small bond market. So they had to go somewhere liquid with a high credit rating mm -hmm. um, that's safe, and that was the U.S. Treasury market. Right. So, so this is where – so Harry did a great job of painting this picture for the listeners out there. This is what we talked about in episode six about Silicon Valley Bank and what happened. Okay. So, banks' business is supposed to be all right, borrowing short and lending long. Yep. All right. And when you had banks that were being regulated, because of regulatory reasoning, had to buy treasuries and have a decent amount of U.S. treasuries on their hold to maturity um, uh, side of the, the balance sheet um, to meet certain regulatory hurdles. It made them take way too much risk on the available for sale portfolio and other loan book while thinking this hold to maturity was going to be very super safe until... Fed Chairman Powell starts raising interest rates at a clip that we've never seen before. 
killing the treasuries, right? So as the yields went up, the prices went down. And so you had a bond market that got hammered last year, hurting the hold to maturity bonds that, um, that had unrealized losses uh, on the books of all these banks. We basically set ourselves up for this situation and should have been paying attention to what happened with Japan, right? And that's where the, the Japanification discussion comes in because we are going to be going through it right now over the next five to 10 years. China is going to be going through it as well, right? It's going to be you know, low growth, trying to get a hold on good inflation, all right, and we could talk about that good inflation versus bad inflation as well. Um, and tried to get, we're going to try to get back to normal interest rates, but it's the low interest rates, the low growth, the low inflation that caused all of Japan's problems, which then led into other things because of the low growth. People weren't having babies anymore. Households weren't being formed any longer. You know, these these 20 somethings were staying at home at their parents' houses. They weren't taking jobs. They were just playing video games. They weren't forming households. Um and the the economy just starts to spiral down this uh uh not for what's the opposite of virtuous cycle. The uh, well deflationary cycle. <laughs> it's a it's a deflationary cycle, exactly. Um and that and and like the not having babies was amazing. So I think it was sometime in the mid nineties, Japan's uh population peaked at 125 million, which is huge when you think about it for an island nation. And it's declining steadily since then, and it's on a trajectory to hit 85 million people by I think 2030 or 40. Right, right, yeah. It's something it's something close by. And yep. they're trying to pull it out of this, and they've got an actual plan in place where they're trying to stop the population decline at a hundred million to at a hundred million number, um, because they know they're going to be in deep doo doo if they uh, if they start having fewer and fewer people to support the economy in an aging economy, right? Um, I think one of the most amazing statistics is that they sell more adult diapers in Japan than baby diapers. Is that true? Yep. Uh, yeah. Um, when I was playing golf, I was shocked. Um, this might be disgusting, but uh, in the toilet booth, there was a there was a tiny little waste bag, and it said, "Please put your diapers here." <laughs> That's hilarious. But it's a it's a sign of the times there. It's probably going to be a sign of the times here as we're all living oh, longer. Um, but living longer is great as long as there's sufficient growth in the population to support those people who are living longer and not working. And one of the ways that we're trying to do it, obviously, in the United States is through immigration. Right. And I yeah. think that's one of the reasons Democrat, the Democrats are being wide open borders on them on immigration because they just want to get more people in here who they also think will vote Democratic, but they want to get more people in here. But explain to the listeners, Harry, what Japan's feelings on immigration have been through the years and how they're oh, right. starting to change uh, uh, you have to handle it in two minutes though <laughs> okay um right so uh the drivers of the economy are uh labor growth and then capital growth and productivity and labor growth is driven by population growth 
But when you have negative population growth, like in Japan, it's, it's a huge drag on the economy. At the same time, we have negative population growth. We have an aging population, which means like the, the biggest spenders are between age, uh, what? The prime age is, I think, um, 15 to 64, something like that. Um, but we're, we're above this now. And the, the prime population is very important, but our prime population is, is shrinking. Um, and that's a very important statistic, actually. The prime working age population growth of major countries are all shrinking. They're all shrinking now. Mm -hmm. Okay, but anyway, so if you have negative population growth, which becomes negative labor growth, um, growth, then um, <clears throat> the population starts to slow, and then uh, the deflationary mindset starts to set in. Um, for a long time, like in the U.S., you had um, very serious inflation in the 80s, but uh, inflation is treated as the enemy, but for us in Japan, it was fighting deflation. Mm -hmm. Negative inflation was the main enemy. Because you couldn't grow the economy. So what? So let's talk about immigration and Japan. Immigration, so, sorry. Yeah. You know, you guys have always been, and don't take this the wrong way, uh, a little xenophobic, right? Yeah. Um, and they didn't like any immigration. And they started to open up because they know they have labor needs, particularly around um, nursing home care and yes. construction workers yes. um talk about that talk about what's going on in, in the in immigration in japan so japan for many years that we know we know that the negative population growth is hurting the economy but it's not like we can open open our borders um, for cultural reasons um wide open to let in the whole world so we've been like going in stops and starts trying to trying to let in uh like high quality immigration, high quality immigrants, mm -hmm. but that's very hard um, to 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 get that in. But um, we we're, we continue to tweak the, our um, immigration rules, and uh, we know that's very important to to try to sustain population mm -hmm. growth. Where but where another... where does Japan get most of their immigrants from? Obviously, in the United States, they're coming from South America. Where are your immigrants coming from? Um, I think it's like. India and Pakistan, I think. Mm. But sorry, not so sure. Okay, no worries. I just it's just interesting because I'm sure it's obviously different than ours. And because you're an island nation, you don't have to worry about people like sneaking over the border, right? You know, right. you actually have to like register to get into that country. You can't just cross the Rio Grande River right. and 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 come in and start, you know, getting all the benefits. I think population control or immigration um, is it's an important economic lever. Whereas I think, so in Japan, it's, it's talked about as an economic lever. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the US, it's, it's, a, it's a much more political debate. It's more social, right? It's more on the social, like, oh, we're great. We're taking care of people. This is, but you guys look at it correctly. And I think we need to look at it that way in the United States because we yes. need to do more, especially around agriculture, right? We need immigration for agriculture. We need people. I mean, your population growth has slowed to like 0 0.5. Mm -hmm. It's almost negative. Of the traditional American Anglo-Saxon. No, no, total population growth. It would be, it would be that low. I don't think it's that low. It would be that low if you didn't count all the immigrant growth and, and and the fact that the immigrants have have more babies um and that 
other populations the the recent immigrants have more babies it's the similar problem that's going on in france and germany right you know the white anglo-saxons are having you know one one and a half babies whereas you need 2.1 babies per couple to maintain your population right and 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 in europe i think it's 1.5 1.7 it's probably 1.3 in japan and that brings me back to china right you know because of china's mistake years ago with the one child policy they've forced upon themselves the japanification that's going to happen right because not only did they have a one child policy um because of their liberal abortion laws they killed the female babies so that everybody wanted a, a male child all right? right so now you've got all these Chinese men that can't find brides because they were never born, right? And so that that's going to be the the interesting. The, I think their experience with Japanification is going to be much harder to rectify than you guys were able to pull out of through the the levers you were able to pull in Japan. Um, I well, know, one I'm, of the levers was extreme, extremely easy monetary policy. That's right. That's right. And right. another another lever that we're trying to pull is uh, to increase productivity. Mm-hmm. but it's very hard to increase productivity mm -hmm. but you guys have always been amazing at automation so that's one of the ways you're able to do it right yeah mm -hmm. yeah um let's finish up the uh podcast uh on a little bit of a lighter note like one of the things that i was always enthralled with and amazed with when i would go to japan and like i said earlier in the podcast i i was working the night desk at bear stearns in 1987 88 and took my first trip to Japan in 88 um, and I've subsequently been there dozens of times. Um, and I've always been amazed that many Japanese people have, this is pre COVID were wearing masks um, and quite often they would be wearing white cotton gloves, uh, especially taxi drivers. Uh, they still have elevator operators over there, which is really cool um <laughs> right um explain to uh our listeners the history of the masks in japan and the white gloves and then how did it or did it not change when covid came along um right well masks were were very heavily used i think it's to protect because Japanese subways are so crowded, you've probably seen the the pictures of <laughs> of uh, station employees pushing in, cramming in people into the trains. Um, if you have if you have a cough um, or 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 you're sneezing, it's polite um, to the other commuters to wear a mask. Right. Um, and it's polite to wear a mask at work to protect your colleagues at work. Um, so the mask culture um, was a lot bigger in Japan than the U.S. Um, and even now, masks aren't required anymore, but the mask percent is like still like about 60 or 70 percent. Yeah, because it was always a thing. It was always a thing anyway. So it wasn't like they were upset by having to wear a mask, whereas in our exactly. country, people were just pissed when they had to put a mask on. Right. Exactly. But, but you guys were used to it. And I remember when I would fly back and forth to Tokyo on Japan Airlines, when you are in business class or in first class and they give you that really cool little dob kit with all the stuff in it you know like the mask for your eyes and it would have you know like you know, mouthwash and a toothbrush and when it always came with a surgical mask to wear and i'm like oh it's kind of weird i'd rather just make sure you know my hands were clean and everything 
And then um, I caught a really bad like strep throat or something flu like thing when I was going to Japan one one year, one trip. And I spent the entire week as in Japan on business, just miserably sick. And I'm going into the drugstore and I couldn't read any of the you know, packaging on the drugs to know what I was taking to try and make me feel better. But when I got back on the plane, I was like, I, I opened up the little dob kit in first class. I'm like, oh my goodness, thank God there's a mask because I felt so bad because I got sick on the way there because somebody wasn't wearing a mask and I didn't think about wearing a mask. And then I got it. It was like, I get what these Japanese have been doing. If they have a cough, they wear a mask to protect everybody else. If they've got an important business meeting coming up or they're having a wedding coming up they're going to make a wear a mask to make sure they don't get sick right so it was like a it was a double um and so i've subsequently learned why that made a lot of sense <laughs> no um anyway this this was great thank you uh for joining me today harry it was wonderful um i uh i, I think we should do this again i think it worked out really well thank you very much i Honored to be here. All right, nice my brother. All right, how do we say goodbye in Japanese? Sayonara. <laughs> Sayonara. I didn't use any of those lines, like I, because I know very little Japanese, and so it was always like, come in the morning, Ohio, Ohio, Genki desu ka? Hi, okay, That's very good. <laughs> Thank you very much. And the only other thing I remember from my time in Japan was I could go into a bar. And I would say to the bartender, bartender, which means, what does that mean? Does that mean like, can we have a couple of beers? Oh, okay. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. Biru, yeah. Biru. I'm saying it wrong. I'm sorry. And, and so the bartender would like get you a couple of beers because you're with, your friends and then one time i went to a bar and i said fatatsu biru kurasai and the, i was by myself and the bartender looked at me like who else are you drinking with is <laughs> you want a couple <laughs> beers and it's just you um i never learned that order just one uh ichi and i didn't think the ichi beru all right thank you very much harry this was wonderful um i look forward to the next time we could do this yes thanks very much <laughs>